Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited to get to be talking today with Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion of Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film, Psycho. I've seen Psycho several times. I took a class in, in grad school that was on Alfred Hitchcock. Although if I remember correctly, Psycho was not one of the films we did because the professor was like, you've probably seen it. We're doing some of his other things. But <laughs> you you had never seen Psycho before. Yeah. If that film professor had done that to me, uh, I guess I just would have missed out on seeing Psycho for a little longer. Yeah. Uh, I had not seen Psycho until we decided to do an episode on it. You and I had talked about it before um, and you had warned me explicitly to avoid the Vince Vaughn version. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there are interesting things happening with Gus Van Sant's remake in in terms of it as a thought experiment because it's a near shot by shot identical film. Mm -hmm. But there are so many ways in which that version is just not okay. And honestly, to be perfectly honest, 95% of it comes down to Anthony Perkins. I adore him. I just think he's so handsome. And like, I know I would be murdered by him because I would just be like, <laughs> oh, you want to take me out on the town? Like, I just, he, he just does such a good job in the performance, his embodiment, everything about him is, is to me, Norman Bates. And so mm -hmm. I think that anyone else, but maybe particularly Vince Vaughn, uh, wouldn't have, have done it for me. Before we get into our larger conversation of Psycho, let's talk briefly about the plot of Psycho. Although, unless you're like me, I guess I can't, we can't assume everyone has seen it because until this, I had not seen it myself. It's true. Uh, if you hadn't seen it, there are obviously going to be massive spoilers ahead. Yes. Uh, we yes. will definitely be spoiling the whole plot, I believe. <laughs> uh-huh, 100%. And so to finish. here is a little overview in case you hadn't seen it, but want to keep listening. Or so, saw it long enough ago that you just don't remember every single minute. So it starts with the real estate clerk, Marion Crane, who is with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, but they're unable to get married because he's coming off of a really bad divorce. Marion comes to work and suddenly becomes in possession of $40,000 that was entrusted to her to deposit. However, Marianne does not deposit this $40,000 at the bank. Instead, she uses $700 to get a used car and goes on the run, stopping at the Bates Motel, where she encounters a dashing and charming, yet weird and isolated, Norman Bates, and some psycho things start occurring. <laughs> you you were you were savoring that, weren't you? 
I was really happy. I didn't know exactly how I was going to end it, but uh, I was glad when I was able to find a way to pun off the title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that like you felt like, you know, the heavens opened, the sun shone down on you. <laughs> this was a film that that you had suggested because I always resist a little bit the notion of of categorizing this film as horror. Mm-hmm. And and I and there's several reasons for that and I, and I feel like you know, and I couldn't talk about most of them because it's more of a feeling than a than an issue of plot. But mm-hmm. now that you've had a chance to to see the film, would you classify this as horror or would you classify this as something else entirely? Or would you say that it is in some sort of liminal space where it is, you know, it's, it's the Schrodinger's cat version of horror where it is both simultaneously horror and not horror? I'm thinking it's probably going to have to be some element of of in between there because it certainly is using a lot of horror I mean and created a lot of these horror tropes that have subsequently been seen over and over again I we were talking briefly before we started recording this podcast about how interesting it was for um, me to watch this film having understood Psycho only from like a cultural zeitgeist perspective and like the tropes of it like the knife in the shower, the music, um, kind of some of the shots of the hotel, this creepy atmospheric nature that really does kind of reduce it down to these more horror elements that have since been perpetuated over and over again by other horror films and other things that would later go on. But also a lot of it itself is focused on this more human element, which does make me kind of gravitate more to maybe like a psychological thriller the element, but it certainly has and has created horror elements and tropes that have been used over and over again. So it's interesting. Yeah, it, it does sort of, you know, it's interesting to to think about there being the potential for something to be the sort of grandfather of a genre without fitting completely in the genre itself. Mm-hmm. Because it's even got the like, who should be punished and why that that initial shot where we see Marion in her Razier, right? Right. I mean, it's like, oh, well, guess she has to die at some point because she must be a whore, right? But there's that. I mean, that is that is not me. That is 100% the reaction that people had based on like, they were concerned about needing to censor it. Mm -hmm. This was scandalous. This is one of the first times that we saw somebody in their under things, particularly in their under things in the middle of the day with their non husband in a film. Right. And, and the fact that that person ends up being the one who quote, has to die, as opposed to the the more virginal and innocent uh, Lila. You know, I mean, definitely this film is is giving us the building blocks to make the genre, even if it's not using them to be within the genre itself. Even in what you've just described is the bare bones of the final girl plot. Of course, the that plot is kind of shoved over into the B storyline. It doesn't really actualize itself until a little bit later into the second act. But it is still the core frameworks of this final girl, like there's another one that has to die. And then after that, because of this tragedy that she endures, they'll rise up and they'll find the answers to everything that's going on. And Carol Clover, in her chapter on on the slasher film, not in the part on the final girl, but on the part on the killer, references Norman Bates, right? That's one of her examples that she's using to explain how the killer is complex and complicated and has you know all of these sort of like psychological elements to unpack so even as early as again some of our sort of formative horror scholarship people are referencing this film i think for me the reason that i will never be able to say that it is the very least exclusively horror Mm -hmm. is 
is for two reasons. One, while I think it is technically possible to make a horror film without meaning to make a horror film, I think that intention is a is a key element of the genre, right? What does horror do? It has its as its intended affect to horrify you. And that's a terrible mm-hmm. definition, but it nevertheless stands that, you know, there needs to be an intention to to horrify. And I think that the intention here is more to to thrill, right? Uh, and to sort of titillate as opposed to to be ex- expressive horror. My other problem is where some people have gone with this in terms of of trying to make it be horror. And that is that a lot of people have tried to talk about, and the word that they use is the word that the film uses, right? That idea of the transvestite and, you know, the fact that this is about oppression and repression and all of that stuff. And and so first off, there's just the part that all of that's dated in terms of terminology, mm-hmm. right? So, and and also inaccurate because he's not doing it based on the that definition for sexual pleasure, right? There's like, so I have problems with how, traditionally and historically some people have tried to make this fit into the horror genre by focusing or emphasizing elements that i'm not sure are quite accurate readings yeah because i think in order for it to be a horror this horror film you really do have to be totally disgusted and appalled entirely by norman bates rather than understanding this like incredible trauma that they went through and then also understanding that that is a the other traumatic event that they inflicted on themselves and this delusion that they have built for themselves and constructed. Yeah, I think it's a lot more complicated than just the, maybe some of the simpler framings that it often gets lumped through to make it fit with yeah. the larger horror genre that this film, as you mentioned, was clearly not intended to necessarily sweetly fall into. It's not like there wasn't horror films or literature around in the 60s when yeah. Alfred Hitchcock was around. So he clearly could have played more into those genre elements. So I think that it's right. You're right in highlighting that intentionality as being a thing that and, prevents it from entirely. Yeah. And I would argue that the the book by Block actually probably does fit more within the horror genre because in large part of how the book frames it, right? So mm-hmm. the movie starts with Marion and she is the person we're focusing on. You know, Norman is sort of secondary and then it's Lila and Sam and, and again, Norman's sort of secondary uh, or tertiary even to to mother. But in, in Block's book, it's it starts with Norman, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're it's not first person narration, but you are sort of sitting in his skin, so to speak. And that's what makes it uncomfortable, right? Right. Because as it progresses, you're like, oh, oh, no, I was like with him while he was being gross and creepy and he was always gross and creepy. Right. And that's an element that I think Hitchcock and crew purposefully took away from the film. Right. Which is why, it, like, uh, I guess in more explicit horror example of something like this would be something more like American Psycho, like, which is a clear articulation off of this where it does play into more of those genre understandings of horror. And so, yeah. The scholarship I want to reference, though, because I do I do want to talk about scholarship, because unsurprisingly, there's a ton on Psycho. What? I know. Isn't that, like, wild, considering there are entire books written just on Hitchcock, and there are entire books written on Psycho, too. But I, I did want to reference some scholarship that situates Psycho within the horror genre that I think is actually making a very strong case and and does reveal that, like you said, right, it may not be 
exclusively horror, but it is nevertheless the foundation of where we're going to be going next. Mm -hmm. And so this comes from someone we've talked about before on the show because she's one of my favorite horror scholars. Her name is Bernice Murphy. And her, to this day, out of all the conferences I've ever been to, her talk on uh, The Shining and the Wendigo elements remains Mm -hmm. one of the few presentations I remember, right? Like it just, it blew my mind. And so she has several several books that are looking at various elements of American Gothic, but this one is called The Highway Horror Film. And she has a chapter called I Almost Drove Right Past Motels and Highway Horror. And her her argument is, is that Psycho is a foundational text in the highway horror subgenre. And she has very specific reasons for, for making that claim. But I, I feel like already you should be like, yep, no, that makes sense. Yeah. She says that there are these <laughs> things... <laughs> The things that you you mentioned, Tony, right? That like we can see them in films like Identity or Bug or The Helpers or the countless other, mm-hmm. countless other horror films where at some point somebody makes a mistake and takes an exit to a terrible, terrible, terrible motel. Mm-hmm. So she begins her chapter by talking about the motel as, as something to be thinking about in both decades since the release of Psycho, but also sort of before, because her entire argument, the larger argument of this book is that the highways that we built in America changed everything in some incredibly profound ways because they literally and figuratively changed our landscape. And she says that post-Psycho, the motel is this place in which, and specifically motel, right, in which unwary travelers are subjected to hideous acts of violence. And she says, Mm -hmm. if these films tell us anything, it is that places of sanctuary are prone to catastrophic inversion, to becoming demonic places, spaces of objection, derangement, violence, and horror. And she references the theorist Derrida and says that, that Derrida actually reminds us the word hospitality is a really tricksy word Because embedded in it is the word hostility, right? The sort of like the undesirable guest. Mm -hmm. So there's this way in which motels are just highlighting the fact that that there's always a sense of of uncomfortableness between the idea of going somewhere else that is not your home to stay and going through the sort of rituals of like getting your key and having a bed, but it's a bed other people have slept in, but it's now your bed for at least the night and what that does for the genre. So her main argument is is that there are these things that Hitchcock is doing in Psycho that are setting us up to understand the highway horror or more specifically the motel horror subgenre and and a lot of it comes down to issues of privacy right and we've talked about this before and we talked about this with like American Psycho right that American Psycho asks us to remember that we are voyeurs mm-hmm. and and so does so does psycho right it reminds us that we are watching her just as much as norman is in fact even more mm-hmm. so because our people is bigger yeah he eventually also does put the picture back up and stop and stop watching whereas in that moment we literally the camera just goes right back to her where we continue actively watching and I think that separation, that concept of voyeurism and active versus passive thing is something that is really interesting and constant throughout this film always. Like, Norman, in that interesting conversation between 
him and um, Marion when when they're surrounded by the birds and he's talking about how he, why he likes the birds so much. Uh, and he projects this passiveness onto these birds that aren't there. And it's just interesting, this difference between, and this role that we that film suggests in like the ways that we view passive versus active behaviors in ourselves and the people around us. And that voyeurism is one way into that initial overarching theme that we see over and over. What I really like about what you just said is that you mentioned, you know, you, you built for us a dichotomy, right, with passive on one side and active on the other. And part of what Murphy is arguing is that films that feature motels, and indeed the concept of motels, particularly post-World War II motels, is constantly defeating these and breaking down these these binaries because mm-hmm. most of the time the motel owners, like in the case of Psycho, lived there, right? right. So it was both a place of business and their home. It was both a public place and a private place. It was both familiar because it looks like every other motel, but unfamiliar because you probably hadn't been there. It is a destination, but it is out of the way, right? And so mm-hmm. this this is what Psycho does so masterfully. And this is why I'm willing to say without a doubt, whether or not it is a horror film, it is the foundation for where we would be going because it's reminding us of how uncomfortable we are with things that we can't put neatly into boxes. Yeah, and that's exactly what that initial conversation is. They establish a whole bunch of these like really clear frameworks. Or I guess it's not their initial conversation. It's when they're eating, uh, she's eating the sandwiches and milk, which is should have been the first sign right there. Who's offering yeah. you milk for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I so I feel I feel very much the same way. But I I was talking to someone the other day that said that their person did that, that they had a big cup of milk for dinner every night. And I mean, and this person's in like their 40s or 50s. And I was like, oh, okay, that's not what I would have done. But that's I mean, so yes, but I'm with you that like, that's a a gentle warning sign. I, for one, certainly would have declined the the milk with my sandwich if I was in that position. (laughs) Well, I know what I'm offering you the next time. I'm going to be like, drink this milk, Tony. And then that's when I'll know something, something is awry there. (laughs) Okay, so that will be my like signal that that you need to run, right? So the next time, the next time, if ever I'm like kidnapped and held hostage and have to invite you over. The next time, like like there's ever been a first time. If that ever happens, I will offer you milk and then you will know that you need to go call 911. <laughs> that is our that is our plan of action. The the last thing I just kind of want to quickly reference, and I'm about to slaughter a French last name because there's a reason I chose to study German instead because German pronounces every letter and French pretends that most letters don't exist. So apologies ahead of time for slaughtering this person's name. But his name is, is Mark Og. That's A-U-G-E with an emphasis on it. And he's a French philosopher who came up with this concept of Mm non-place. And he said that places are are defined as being relational or historical or having meaning. And then there are these things that are non-places. And and that's the opposite, right? There are these sort of transitory, sometimes liminal spaces, but the the meaning is not embedded in the place in the way that it should be. And and motels and hotels are perfect examples of non-places. But again... It's a non-place for Marion and, and Lila, but it is a place for Norman, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, in fact, it's the ultimate place. It is his home and his livelihood. And so, again, this film brilliantly just sort of reminds you that 
you know, are you good for being a voyeur? Are you bad for being a voyeur? Yes. Right. Like, are you mm-hmm. in the home or not in the home? Yes. Is this a home invasion narrative because he breaks into Marion's room? Or is this a home invasion narrative because Marion intrudes into Norman's home? Is he, is his isolation by choice or is he here to speak up or is it for something else? Is running away any better than staying where you are and being isolated somewhere else in the case of Marion? It's all these really interesting binaries and situations that get set up and how Hitchcock and the screenwriter set these up for a lot of dialogue where they'll like really and be working, running, running right to a clear solution. And then you ask one question and the whole thing falls apart. And yes. that's, it's horrifying for both of the characters. They're clearly both. Uh, I mean, everybody's clearly uncomfortable by this, yes. this breaking in here, but particularly, I mean, Norman and obviously uh, Marion are really uncomfortable that by this. And, so obviously, uh, that means Marion's got to go. Yeah. So <laughs> when, when there are two uncomfortable characters, one of them has to be removed because then that's the irritant, right? Because he was, quote, fine and, until until Marion arrived. And this is a carry through until some of the final images of the film. So the spoilers that we promised are now about to happen, <laughs> right? Mother and Norman. Is it Norman? Is it mother? Yes. And that last superimposition before the final footage is actually of them removing the car from the bog. Mm-hmm. But that final superimposition where we have seen Norman, he's sitting there, and then we hear mother's voice, and she's like, I wouldn't even harm a fly. And then we see his face and we see her skull, and it sort of, you know, superimposes onto each other. Right? That that is Hitchcock denying us in that final moment the the opportunity to to have any sort of neatly defined barriers or mm-hmm. borders yeah and it's also interesting except it's clearly in that moment separating it from being in any relation to like um i've seen this to like the lgbtq community or transgender issues because they're not in it's clearly this other persona that is taken over rather than being connected as the film itself cannot denies that as well. And I, cause I've seen this film in conversation a lot with other films, like silence of the lambs in the first mm-hmm. betrayal and this conversation around being a trans narrative or representative of that or the fears around that. And I don't know, that just seems that I'm not even confident that I'm sure I would be willing to lump it in with that category either. Cause this film is so pres- uncategorizable, it feels like. And there's a lot of discussion about the sort of, quote, latent or repressed homosexuality of, of Norman. But, mm-hmm. but the way that it's argued is with the like, because you can't see it and because nothing in this film suggests it, therefore it's present, right? One of those sort of arguments. And and I think, honestly, that has more to do with, with Anthony Perkins mm-hmm. and... And his portrayal, and of course, you know who he he was as a as a person embodying this role. Then, then certainly, what's in in the film? Because I don't think you get that impression at all in the the Gus Van Sant version. So this film has been both criticized for that, but I know that there are also some people that have been like, "Hey, look, we have an early gay character, and you know, yes, he doesn't do great things, but they don't blame him for being gay as for the reason that he's being bad, right?" So, right. so I've seen this film being both appropriated and sort of vilified for, for again, the same subtext that is, you know, we, we talked about subtext before, but this is like, this isn't even subtext. This is 
I want this to be in there, so I'm going to make sure it's in there sort of uh, reading. And kind of, I guess, a combined, like a, a projection of like the information that's available about Anthony Perkins' yeah. personal life onto this fictional character that's been constructed, which is, it's an interesting reading, and it's certainly not, it's not ungrounded in reality, right. but and but it also is not 100% textually supported as well, which is just leads back to this larger thing of like, it's because it's not I, it's not necessarily a positive or negative betrayal of it, like you're suggesting, because this film is just so much more complicated. And, and that's just one of the many areas. One of the great things about this film is getting to experience it for the first time and, and not having any knowledge. So Hitchcock was able to do things that we just frankly wouldn't be able to do today. Right. So right. he bought up as many copies of, of Block's book as he could prior can you imagine trying to do that now? Uh, yeah, you and you know you couldn't get the, the ebook version off yeah. of the internet. Yeah, I anymore, mean it would be impossible. So. You'd have to like be best friends with Jeff Bezos, I guess. Yeah, and, I guess, like temporarily I guess. have it be suspended. I think that's what you'd have to do. You would have to be friends with Jeff Bezos and every other bookstore owner alive. Yeah. <laughs> so since that's probably not going to happen, uh, I doubt anyone will be able to do this again. But Hitchcock didn't want anyone knowing anything going into this film. So he he bought the books that he could. He really did not let the cast do any interviews or things like that because mm -hmm. he wanted it to be this sort of tightly guarded secret. And the result is that our leading lady, because even though she, quote, has to be punished maybe a little because she's in her bra and such. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is her leading lady and and she doesn't she doesn't make it right and she doesn't right. make it pretty early into this film yeah i was shocked by that so i had no idea that it happened that the, i knew that the shower scene was coming and that she, this she was definitely going to die but i guess in my mind i had always put that way later into the film so when she died so early my first thought was just like well where else is this film going to go? Because yeah. all of that conversation and this initial tension is all around this controversy of like Norman and Marion. And are they going to get out of their traps that they put themselves into? Are they going to be able to get this, this tension and resolve it? And the answer is no, they're not right. going to. They're going to take it out. And then the rest of it is figuring out why. And not only are they going to not work out their tension, but Marion's not even going to know that there was tension to be had until it's too late. Exactly. Right? Like, this could have become a hostage situation type film or some sort of like domestic drama, right? But instead, before she even realizes that, that she is in danger and she's decided, right, that, to, to return. She's made that decision to return back to the city to return the money. And mm -hmm. one of the really fascinating things is, you know, seeing that we have this sort of red herring of, well, maybe she'll be punished because she stole the money, right? But that's, right. that's not why she's being punished at all. Again, it just complicates the situation. But also, we just have to give props to Hitchcock for doing something that, you know, Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson were going to do later in Scream, and that is to take a big A-list actor mm -hmm. in Janet Lee, mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, right? right. And, and being like, just kidding. We build her as the top person, but she's out just like again with Drew Barrymore. And exactly. and that that is incredibly effective and just kind of shocking, right? To to do that, especially when you were the first one to do it. And 
just the way that you're introducing all of these different red herrings. I particularly love the car scene in which she's driving um, along the highway and just you're hearing these voices in her head. And it's not ever confirmed whether these are voices actually happening outside in the real world that she's unable to hear, or if these are just voices in her head that she is imagining all of these things that are could potentially happen and just being anxious. And I think that is it just adds to this tension because you can't know it's Hitchcock denying you access into Marion's thoughts. Yeah. Or at least making you unsure. Right. So Murphy talks specifically about the car, and I, I really like this passage. So she says, In a trope often seen in the highway horror film, the confines of the car act as an echo chamber for Marion's most neurotic imaginings. Hitchcock heightens this tension by keeping a tight close-up on Janet Lee's face whenever she is behind the will and by dram- dramatizing Marion's panicky interior monologue. She has been alone with her thoughts for too long, a plight ironically echoed in that of her murderer-to-be and the cracks are beginning to show. Her mental state is as fraught as Bernard Herrmann's desperately insistent score, which is the sound of primordial dread. Just as Marion finally begins to near her destination, she is blinded by heavy rain and by the headlights of oncoming traffic. Suddenly, her car slows down and the score comes to an abrupt stop. All we hear for a moment is the rattle of the rain as it ricochets off the windshield, until gradually, materializing into view, the neon sign advertising the Bates Motel can be seen. Marion's decision to stop is an impulsive act born out of physical and mental exhaustion. Had she not accidentally gotten off the main road, she would have reached Sam's hometown in 30 minutes. In the end, it is mere chance that brings her to the Bates Motel. Her roadside safe haven is, in fact, a death trap. And then she says, which will eventually become a very popular, familiar trope. Yeah. I love I love the way that, that Murphy writes because one of the things that I think is really important in scholarship is is to be doing close readings like that, where she's reminding us of the cinematography as well as the sound. And that is one of the things that I, I'm saddened that we do just an audio podcast because it would be nice to like be able to play clips to remind people of things. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think we do have to talk about the fact that for all of his grossness and he he was a gross man. Hitchcock had a genius eye for cinematography and editing. Truly. Uh, There are just so many gorgeous shots. Like, you can also tell about this film that it was made very cheaply, but very efficiently. So that, because it's a very minimal amount of locations and the set dressing is all incredibly simple. And so it's all in the execution of the shots and the editing composition that the film is able to work. Because it doesn't have, it's not a fancy film and it didn't have a ton of money on it. It used a lot of the same uh, crew and set members from previous projects just out of necessity. And so it really is just a testament to the commitment from everyone involved in the craft and composition of this film that's able to look as good as it does and hold up as well as it does. Like I'm watching, I just, I just watched it today in 2022 and it's, we're like, what, that's 62 years later and this film is, I feel it looks just as good, if not better, than films that are coming out today. I think that's because, and and you and I were talking about this just sort of in passing earlier today, that, you know, certain things have stood up better than other things in terms of like CGI or things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it has to do with remembering that 
these are tools rather than the the product and and Hitchcock understood maybe better than anyone that cinematography is a is a tool to communicate whatever it is that you're hoping to accomplish and there are a couple of scenes that just do this in a way that is still so profound we talk about it today and and mm-hmm. one of the really good examples of course is is this shower scene and it's funny because you you mentioned that like ironically the stuff that's made it into pop culture is as the just sort of like throwaway comments or references particularly the like read 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 and the night yeah, stabbing the night is, stab, is like yeah. <laughs> the least significant and and meaningful component in many ways of the film yeah it kind of this film is really a long disturbing uh voyeuristic view of like exploring guilt and regret and isolation and this tension between characters who feel very passive and stuck and isolated versus the active choices that they take to keep themselves in these situations and these private traps and yet the thing that's remembered about it is the like two times that it gets stabby in the shower and then to a lesser extent when it's repeated again with the detective when he falls down the stairs it's not necessarily wrong they're amazing moments cinematography wise editing wise score is incredible the performance so that's that's the thing right that the scenes that you referenced we have we have pulled out in many respects the least interesting part right there are a couple of stabby motions and and that we have used to reference what is actually this incredible scene that has very little to do with with penetration and stabbing in fact there's no penetration at all Mm-hmm. There, there's no actual stabbing in that two minute sequence. It consists of 78 camera shots and 52 different cuts. Wow. It took them a week to film. They did it on a close set so that the, for the parts that Janet Lee was there, you know, she was wearing something that was covering, covering her various uh, bits because she could, but it had to be skin colored. She had to be under that water forever. Hitchcock was incredibly cruel. He was an incredibly cruel man. In the film Rebecca, he purposefully told the lead actress that the main actor didn't like her and thought that she was talentless so that she would be more anxious to match her character. In Psycho, Uh. (laughs) yeah, yeah. In Psycho, (laughs) he purposefully made the water, and I can never remember if he made it really cold or really hot, but he purposely changed the temperature of the water to get her to make that scream. Right. And and so he just he treated all of his his leading ladies like objects. And there's lots and lots of scholarship written on that. But the interesting things about Psycho are the things that are not happening. We don't have any penetration. We just have the allusion to it. This is what montage is at its best. Right. Mm -hmm. Creating meaning out of a bunch of really meaningless shots because it's a hand and then it's a curtain and then it's a knife and then it's a knife like pressed against the tummy and then. We have a graphic match where we have the the circling of the the bloody water down the drain with the circling of her her dead eye. Mm-hmm. We have Hershey syrup being used for the the blood to create that real sort of rich contrast. Yeah, and it was all of these details that make that scene so powerful. And in the Arbogast murder down the stairs, it is an equally complicated experience of of zooming and mm-hmm. tracking in different directions, right, to create that affect of him falling. And this is why we'll continue going back to Hitchcock, even though he was such a gross, just gross human. And and this is why we continue to allude to him being an auteur, right? Like the single amazing person, when, of course, in actuality, 
it was his his incredible team that helped him accomplish these things. Again, we we have this desire because I think psycho is is too too much to try to to compartmentalize and to break it down into meaningful little nuggets mm-hmm. rather than the complexity that it is. Because I feel like the larger cultural understanding of this film really is only between this like Norman Bates and the Miss Crane conflict. And then there, which says nothing to the last two thirds of the movie that's still left with, which has these like really fascinating search in trying to put all these complications of this mystery and trying to put it all together, which is one of my favorite parts of the film was just getting to watch and unpack and go through this mystery with it, which is, I guess, of course, what Hitchcock and the screenwriter were so famous at doing. Right, because we haven't really spent much time talking about Lila and Sam, but they're really fascinating characters because Sam is, by all intents and purposes, you know, an adulterer. And if he's not an adulterer, he's at least having an affair, an extramarital affair. Mm-hmm. And and that is our first impression of him, kind of coupled with the idea that, like, he's with Marion, right? And Marion has proven herself not to be perfect. Right. So therefore, he must. There must be something wrong with him. Otherwise, why wouldn't he? Right. But then we meet Sam, and he's he's a really upstanding, decent guy. That what could have easily become this sort of really disturbing romantic flair between him and Lila never happened. Instead, she was treated problematically, but treated as this like kid sister. But she also was like, no, actually, I kind of know how to solve things. Like, and mm-hmm. she's she's a very competent character a character that doesn't fit hitchcock's sort of icy blonde so she has a better chance at being respected in many respects but those characters are profoundly interesting but again they kind of get pushed to the sidelines because they're not the the scandalous bits right they're not the horror e bits mm-hmm. and i think that's what's so so we've been talking obviously because this is a horror podcast more on yes. those other four elements and this discussion of like is Psycho, uh, is it a horror? Is it a, did it, what did it shape the horror genre? But there are all these other elements that are super interesting and that someone else maybe, and I'm, and they definitely have, and there are, as you said, there are whole books written on it from a thriller perspective and all that. So it's really interesting and really been fun to, when I was watching this film, be looking for those horror elements and thinking of it in context of that horror, horror framework. And, you know, that's what we talk about here. Right. And I think the place that the film maybe tries explicitly to to build that horror is, of course, I think what is the least interesting to you and I. And that is when when we have the mansplaining at the end, which is hands down always my least favorite part of this film, because this is such a good, clever film that has managed to communicate so much without having to give us those things. Right. Like, again, we have the the creation of a penetrating knife without the actual penetrating knife and that was more an issue of like him needing to to get the haze code right and approval for ratings but but it still is an amazing metaphor in of itself you don't show the penetration because that's why norman is doing the kill the killing so there will be no penetration exactly because he is punishing himself for wanting to right like uh, but it's just so brilliant and then at the end it's like well son's Gather around while I tell you about his mental condition. And and I know yeah. that watching this now, we are familiar with another very problematic horror trope that I think Psycho gave us, and that is the mentally ill killer, right? And yeah. not just mentally ill, but the but someone that is slightly falling under again, he's not, but like under the label of 
multiple personality or DID, where it's like this one mm-hmm. person is encapsulating multiple people. So I, I know that this is one of the early texts giving us that really bad trope, but yeah. still it just felt so clunky for a film that had been just so like, good. soaring. Yeah. It, it is one of those moments when that is why, so that with the ending is why another reason why this film would never, could never comfortably be, I think, classified in the horror genre because it so clearly just comes out and tells you exactly what's happened and why. In whereas in horror, I think one of the trademarks is that a lot of things just you kind of have to figure it out. The scary part is in the details that you're not quite sure of. Whereas this is that this is clearly following in the in the footsteps of the mystery, the noir genre, yeah. the and that detective speech in which like at the end the detective, although and this was he the detective? He was a no, psychologist. He was the psychologist or psychologist. Right. Yeah. Oh, right, because the detective was had to die. He, yeah, he did. <laughs> he was. He did the same thing as Marion. Yes, was challenging Norman. Right, and Uma. and in Norman's defense, which you know is a dubious thing to say, you could read Arbogast's action as, as a home invasion, right? Like mm-hmm. no one invited him into the house. He comes in unannounced, without yes. permission, and he's and then he goes up into. He doesn't even stay where you're allowed to stay as a guest, mm-hmm. right? He goes upstairs into the inner sanctum. It, and that's, you know, so again, like, should we be feeling like this is a home invasion narrative for Norman? Or right. is this a slasher for the ever Marion, right? It's, and that idea obviously is like seen later played out in like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And an- another element that we didn't necessarily talk about, but is also interesting and would get later rearticulated in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is also the abandonment of industry because of the development of another new thing, which is a hor- horrific element in of itself too, that would later be articulated and developed upon within the genre, but is just starting to emerge in this text through that the Bates Motel being completely itself also isolated and cut off from the rest of the world and because of development and human progress. And this is why I have such a problem with that final speech. Because what you just described is is disaffirmative, right? right. It, what is the problem? Society is the problem. Why do we feel like the highway system is not safe? Because, because it inherently isn't. Because we've decided that we are willing to break down borders and boundaries. And yet we're, we're surprised when there are negative consequences for literally scarring the landscape. We mm-hmm. are surprised when there are consequences for what some people have described as forward mobility. Mm-hmm. And and that to me is the most interesting parts of, of this narrative, this this thinking about like, should do we actually even have the right to find motels disturbing because we kind of made them be disturbed, disturbing. Mm-hmm. But at the end, right, he's like, but don't worry, fine folks. This is a, a freak incident. This is a, a person who snapped and, and it's all about like, it's his fault, right? Like it's it's mm-hmm. Norman that's the problem, but good news. We have safely contained him. And that's just, I don't really, I didn't really expect anything different from Hitchcock. I don't think that that was the type of film he was interested in making, was a sort of disaffirmative film. Mm-hmm. But but that's where I think, for me, we lose out on, I, on, again, that richness that he's been providing us all along. And so maybe even this film is horror. It's just not necessarily the type of horror that either of us are all that interested in exploring because... I think what's so fr- I feel personally, at least one of the frustrating things about the film and with that ending is that nice little bow that it ties up these really complicated things into. 
it really simplifies a lot of it into fitting more of a dualistic viewpoint when it spent the whole film kind of exploring structurally why that was a limiting and unfair perspective to put on anybody. And now to completely contradict everything you and I just said, I'm going to say that at the same time, there's the potential for something really fascinating in that the final footage of the film is the car being removed from the bog, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that the things we bury, the actions that we have, we can keep them buried for a little while, but eventually all of our dirty secrets are going to come back. And so Again, the film, it, it gets real close, but it, it just is missing, for, like you said, for you and me, what we think horror ought to be, which, you know, who are we to go against Hitchcock? Yeah, and if at the very least, even if, we did, if it's not entirely the horror that we like, it's certainly horror worth exploring. It was super interesting for me to get to watch for my first time, and I'm so glad that we were able to talk about it on here from this horror perspective, because, yeah, there's a lot to unpack and a lot to like in it. Well, that is our discussion of Psycho. I'm really glad, Tony, that you suggested we do it. I know that we're trying to think of, of ways that we can be talking about some of the, the older films that, that helped define many of the, the newer films that we love so much. And I think this was a great sort of first entry into a pre-1970s, because uh, mm-hmm. we've only done 1970s onward films, a pre-1970s horror film. I found it really enriching just because like it was so interesting to kind of, as you mentioned, most of our ponderies and discoveries, at least on the podcast and the research that we did together and for the class that I was a peer tutor for with you, I uh, was mostly 70s and onwards. So it's so interesting to go back and see something earlier and see the elements and how they emerge in the films onwards. So cool. Tony, what are we going to be looking at next? So we went Back to the 60s, and now we're going to go all the way 40 years into the future to the 2000s and talk about Scream 3. Yay, I've really been enjoying all of our franchise investigations, but but the Scream one is is exciting for me. And I'm, I'll be excited to hear your thoughts because hands down out of the five Scream films, Scream 3 is my least favorite. So interesting. Well, yeah, so I'll be I'll be excited to hear your thoughts about it. So people should be re-watching Scream 3 before our episode. What else should they be doing? Well, you can always uh, get in touch with us via our social medias in the description. Uh, let us know on there what you think of this episode. What did you think about Psycho? Is it horror? Is it thriller? What are your favorite, least favorite things about us? Let us know. You can also email us uh, to let us know future episodes, what you'd like to hear us talk about. And... Go to wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us connect with other horror fans out there. I want to thank Jackson O'Brien, who is editing this podcast episode and who edited Woo! our previous episode, too. Yeah, the happiest day of my life uh, was not having to edit an episode for the first time <laughs> and uh, and also having uh, such a great, great job done. So thank you so much, Jackson, and to the other Such a Nightmare interns, uh, Anna and Kai, Thank you so much for all of your help. And to you, the listeners, thank you for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. <laughs> <laughs>